Welcome to the Underground Christian Podcast, the sensible Christian resource for sensible Christians. Gosh, these days, if you sleep too long, you'll miss some life-changing event, like a new attack on civilization. Listening to the mainstream news and political mouthpieces like Nancy Pelosi and Jen the Destroyer Pisaki, it seems like Vlad the Impaler Putin has used his Russian military to invade and terrorize the peaceful, inclusive, and diversity-loving Democratic Republic of Ukraine. These New World Order puppets and their NATO comrades have declared that Vladimir is evil and is furthermore a despicable tyrant running a tyrannical, Gestapo-infested hellhole of a country. But one wonders what they're complaining about. I would assume that would make him one of their best friends. After all, there's no tyrannical, Gestapo-infested hellhole of a country that Pelosi and Biden and the media don't like, and more importantly, work closely with. Take China, for instance. It's a country run by a despicable tyrant named Xi Jinping, who is the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party murdered many tens of millions of innocent Chinese citizens during its communist revolution, and then its cultural revolution. It's continued its genocidal policies, with the approval of the UN and every important Democrat in the Democratic Party, I might add, with its forced abortion policy and modern-day concentration camps. The Chinese government routinely takes political prisoners it doesn't like and forces them into these camps, with many sent to donate their internal organs to the organ-buying public, much to the eternal misfortune of the organ donors. In fact, the Bidens and members of Congress and the NBA and many Hollywood personalities that the media adores drool over themselves kowtowing to the Chinese government just so they can get a pat on the back from Z and a lucrative shoe contract with a company that employs slave labor in China. So naturally, these communist-loving Democrats have demonized Vladimir Putin. They got so angry with him that they severed important trade agreements. And since Europe gets most of its energy from Russia, that severing produced an immediate fuel availability crisis. Under normal circumstances, we might not really care. But because one of the very first executive decrees that the Biden regime issued terminated the Keystone Pipeline that would have fed our refineries with oil from Canada, followed shortly thereafter by various decrees to make domestic production of oil more difficult, more costly, and in many cases impossible. We are in the unfortunate position of having to compete on the world market for an increasingly short supply of oil. The solution of our political elites was not to reverse these horrible decisions of the Biden regime so that we can produce our own energy, but to run to Saudi Arabia and Venezuela begging them to send us oil. And of course, these are two of the most tyrannical and repressive countries on earth. If Cuba and North Korea had oil, the regime would probably want to import it from them too. No, these people love tyrants, and in fact, they personally benefit from lucrative financial contracts with tyrants. Contracts that are deals for the elite, but don't in any way benefit Joe Average. As you fill up your fuel tank with $100 worth of gasoline this weekend, consider how low this regime has taken America in a mere 14 months. When the despised orange man bad left office, peacefully, I might add, despite all the election shenanigans, America was paying about $2.30 a gallon for gasoline. It was affordable because it was abundant due to our incredibly productive drilling and extraction efforts, so much so that we were actually energy independent for the first time in decades. We pumped oil out of the ground, refined it above the ground, and pumped it around on the ground right from operations here in America. We made so much oil, in fact, that we'd begun to export it to foreign countries. And American producers accomplished this, mind you, during the COVID pandemic. 
But then, a regime took office with the apparent single-minded intention of destroying America as quickly as humanly possible, based on literally every decision and policy it's made and taken since that fateful day back in January, including the policy of demonizing Russia and deifying Ukraine. We should hardly be surprised that our rulers portray this conflict as a battle between good and evil, with the globalists representing good and the Russians representing evil, because the regime is filled with globalists who need an enemy to vilify and a crisis to export. So before you go joining the American mercenary force that's rushing to fight and die for Mother Ukraine, all with the blessing of the Biden regime and the We Oppose Terrorism Congress, Consider the broader picture of what's going on and who America is really supporting. To do that, we need to back up in time and look at what happened after a collapse of Germany at the end of World War II. In the last episode, we were introduced to a Nazi SS officer named Werner von Braun, who was a Nazi weapons expert. In fact, he was the inventor of the infamous German V-2 rocket that bombarded and terrorized England. At the end of the war, the government forerunner of the CIA bought Werner a coffee, made a deal that he couldn't refuse, and flew him over to the United States to help us build some of those great rockets. He and his team of German and American scientists were so good at building these flying death machines that in 1950, the U.S. government moved him to Redstone Arsenal in Alabama, where they developed the first space launch vehicles, including the predecessors to our modern nuclear warhead carrying ICBMs. In 1960, President Eisenhower moved the Redstone Rocket Group over to the newly formed National Aeronautics and Space Administration to develop the giant Saturn moon rockets. And in 1970, Werner became the head of NASA's strategic planning, where he lived out the rest of his government days in a Washington, D.C. office building, hobnobbing with the big boys. That's quite a journey for a humble little Waffen-SS officer. While Werner provided a pragmatic boost to America's Missile of Death program, he was symbolic of our government's broader secret treatment of the Nazi leadership team, a team that wasn't so much destroyed as it was dismantled and relocated to friendlier locales. The Allies zealously punished less useful Nazis they didn't like and did what they could to make sure that the German companies would not outcompete the rest of Europe during the rebuilding effort. For example, they forced the massive German chemical and pharmaceutical conglomerate IG Farben, at the time the largest company in Europe and the largest pharmaceutical company in the world, to break into its six component parts. You might recognize a few of them. BASF is a modern electronics and chemical powerhouse. Bayer, or Bayer as they say, is one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. Hoaxed AG is a chemical company that later became Aventus. Agfa was a photographic materials company that is now Agfa Gavert, a producer of reproduction equipment. Griesheim Electron was a chemical company that was broken up and absorbed by Hoechst and Siemens. And Chemische Fabrik was a chemical company that was broken up into several component parts that are scattered around Europe, and they still exist today. The physical elements of fascism were redistributed and absorbed into the Victor's system, but the ideology of fascism lived on in the form of an infection within the business and industrial communities of Europe and America, and especially within academia. The ideological fascists had no intention of abandoning their precious human philosophy, so they simply rebranded themselves and continued on with their plans of global domination, kind of like what China did with communism. To make their rebuilding efforts easier, most of these closet fascists discarded the Hitlerian propensity to openly hate on Jews and blatantly promote eugenics programs. 
It isn't that they stopped hating Jews or abandoned their eugenics ideals, but they couldn't risk being associated with those activities in the post-war climate. It wasn't time, and so they publicly repressed them. Of course, there are always exceptions, like the large contingent of Nazi sympathizers in Ukraine who resented the communist Russians for defeating their Nazi friends and taking over their country. The communists forced them underground for several decades, but once the Iron Curtain fell, they joyfully popped out and celebrated their newly found freedom by recruiting young and enthusiastic new fascists for their Nazi-themed militias. Paramilitary groups like the Azov Special Operations Detachment rose up to become part of the National Guard of Ukraine. The Azov Battalion has a wonderful logo that Wikipedia describes thusly. In 2014, the regiment gained attention after allegations of torture and war crimes, as well as neo-Nazi sympathies and usage of associated symbols by the regiment, as seen in their logo featuring the Wolfangel, one of the original symbols used by the 2nd SS Panzer Division, Das Reich. It can be a little hard to describe in a podcast, but the logo is basically a variation of the double lightning bolt used to form the SS logo, the lightning bolt representing the power of Satan in a mockery of the Bible, since Christ used the depiction of lightning to describe the way Satan fell from heaven to his prison empire here on the earth. Don't you like how Wikipedia says the regiment gained attention for allegations of torture and war crimes? Kind of like the German Nazis gained attention for allegations of concentration camp exterminations. There are other Ukrainian militias as well, like the paramilitary group The Right Sector, a group founded in 2013 which decided to become a political party, kind of like a lot of the Middle Eastern militias. Its commander, Dmitryo Yarosh, is a member of the Ukraine parliament. There is the Adar Battalion and the Dnipro B Battalion, both of which were founded in 2014, as well as lots of smaller local militias that are all proud Nazi-supporting fascists. Notice that most of these groups formed in 2013 and 2014. Let's see. Who was the American president back in 2013 and 2014? Oh yeah, Obama. And who was his vice president back then? Joseph Robinette Biden. American intelligence assets have been operating in Ukraine for a long time, long before Obama's presidency but the personal involvement of the Biden crime family in Ukraine is somewhat more recent. He and other politicians like to do business with this upstanding country because they can get things done there. And politics on the left is all about getting stuff done. And fast. There was that day, for example, when Biden paid the Ukrainian government a visit, and the next thing you know, his son Hunter is on the board of directors of the Ukrainian oil conglomerate Burisma. Now, you might think that that is just because Hunter Biden is a knowledgeable oil and gas man, but that would be wrong. Hunter has no oil or gas experience. He knows nothing about the oil industry or managing large corporate entities. He has no engineering experience, no financial experience to speak of, other than getting paid $80,000 per month by Burisma. He has no experience serving on a corporate board of directors. He never personally visited Ukraine and never attended a meeting of the board of directors. He never visited the oil field operations in Ukraine and has never been to any oil or gas field ever, as far as I can tell. He's pretty good, however, at storing pedophilic images on his computer, pumping illegal drugs into his body, paying to be entertained by exotic dancers and prostitutes, and fathering children out of wedlock, all things that I'm sure made him a valuable board of director man at Burisma. It's funny that the journalistic curiosity didn't get stirred up even a little bit about a vice president's son being given a prestigious board of director position 
on a large foreign energy conglomerate board of directors in a country that Joe Biden visited regularly. Not even when Hunter managed to get himself involved in some shady financial activities sufficient to warrant a criminal investigation by the national prosecutor. And that's where we see a glimmer of the brilliance that is the Biden crime family. When it became clear that the investigation was being taken seriously, then-Vice President Joe Biden flew straight to Kiev and gave the president of Ukraine an ultimatum. Either fire the prosecutor, Viktor Shokin, or lose $1 billion in American foreign aid. A few hours later, the prosecutor was looking for a new job, and the press was chuckling right along with Uncle Joe. I think it's worth taking a listen to Biden brag about this Ukrainian manipulation. I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev, and, uh, and I was going, supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had. They were walking out to the press conference. Said, "No, nah, I said I'm not going to. We're not going to give you the billion dollars." They said, "You have no authority. You're not the president." The president said, "I said call him." <laughs> I said, "I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars." I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> Got fired. Doesn't that kind of threat qualify as a genuine quid pro quo? Didn't Nancy Pelosi, Chucky Schumer, and that demon-eyed troll from California repeatedly tell us that a quid pro quo is an impeachable offense? Have any of these politicians initiated impeachment proceedings against President Joe Biden? Nope. They have not even mentioned it. From that, we can conclude that there must be two standards which they apply to a president in America. One is a lofty, almost unattainable standard that Donald Trump and Republicans must meet, and the other is the extremely low, infinitely flexible standard that Democrat presidents must meet. Apparently, Blatant favoritism towards Democrat politicians is true even on the campaign trail, because in 2020, during a lead-up to the presidential election, U.S. Attorney David Weiss decided not to seek warrants or subpoenas against Hunter Biden for criminal activities he allegedly committed in America to, quote, not alert the public to the existence of the case in the middle of a presidential election, end quote. And after the election, the case quietly died. Genius! But back to Ukraine. These modern militias are not financial powerhouses and can only organize and arm themselves with lots of clandestine support by foreign governmental agencies. Guess which ones might have been heavily involved in Ukraine? If you don't know but would like to guess, consider that once Putin entered the stage, the U.S. government, NATO, globalist leaders, and the mainstream media all decided they love Ukraine and see nothing wrong with a few good old boys with swastikas fighting for the persecuted blue and gold. They see nothing wrong with supporting Nazi militias because this hidden governmental jewel fits their preferred governmental philosophy, serves their political purposes, and allows the U.S. government to operate bioweapons facilities right in Russia's backyard. And Putin knows all about these facilities and decided it was time to look out for the interests of Russia and not the globalist cartel and its genocidal delusions. He's been doing that for years, and the globalists hate him for that. Listen to Stu Peters tell us why. My name is Stu. It's been almost two weeks since Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. 
still the biggest story going on, and it probably should be because there's still a very real chance that if the demonic deep state in the United States gets their way, this war could blow up the entire world. Two former NATO commanders want a no-fly zone over Ukraine. So does Congresswoman Madam Kinzinger. To be clear, a no-fly zone would absolutely mean war with Russia, very possibly a nuclear war. Nikki Haley wants us to ship fighter jets to Ukraine and do an embargo of Russian oil, which would absolutely crash the global economy. And our own too, because we've already neutered our own oil and gas industries intentionally, on purpose. It's all by design. Nikki Haley knows this, they all know this, but that's how fanatical our leadership is about all of this. They want to absolutely destroy Russia by any means necessary, and it doesn't matter the risk. They're already doing everything they can short of actually rounding up Russians and putting them into camps. Russians are being fired from their jobs if they don't denounce Vladimir Putin. Liquor stores are banning Russian liquor. MasterCard and Visa and Apple Pay have all pulled out of Russia. And keep in mind, we're doing all of this for Ukraine, which we're told to believe is a democracy. But of course, when they use the word democracy, what they really mean is a nation controlled by oligarchs and the U.S. State Department, because that's what democracy is to them. They want you to absolutely hate Russia. They want you to be as insanely fanatical about your hate for Vladimir Putin as they are. So the question has to be asked, why? Why are you supposed to hate Vladimir Putin? And remember, they didn't just start hating him like two weeks ago. This isn't all of a sudden it didn't just pop up. They've hated him for years. They say that they hate him because he's a warmonger. That's a lie. They hate Putin because he doesn't play by the rules the U.S. State Department sets. A decade ago, Russia passed a law banning gay propaganda. You can be gay in Russia, that's fine, sure, go ahead. But you can't push it in schools. You can't glamorize it on TV. You can't make it a part of the de facto national religion like they do here in America. And they hate Putin for that. When Putin took office, Russia had two million abortions per year. Two million, two million innocent children murdered, slaughtered in the womb every year in Russia. In 2011, though, Russia banned abortion after 12 weeks and imposed a mandatory waiting period before getting one. Fast forward to today, the abortion rate is one-third what it was when Putin took office, and they hate Vladimir Putin for that. In contrast to Vladimir Putin, America elects politicians like Democrat William Smith of Maryland. He has proposed in Maryland Senate Bill 669 that we allow abortions up to four weeks, not before the due date, but after the baby is born. That's right. He proposes to allow mothers to kill their baby up to a month after it's born. I guess just in case the mothers change their mind after seeing it. Attorney Olivia Summers of the American Center for Law and Justice commented, The bill also proposes a revision of the fetal murder manslaughter statute that would serve to handcuff the investigation of infant deaths unrelated to abortion. This is where most Democrats and many Republicans in America would like America to go on the topic of infant murder, otherwise known as abortion or infanticide, uh, the uniparty. They are two sides of the same coin. In comparison, Vladimir Putin is a virtual Mother Teresa toward the rights and practical protections of unborn children. That's enough of a reason for the globalist cabal to hate him, but they have many, many more reasons to compliment it. Before Putin took office, Russia was run by Boris Yeltsin, who let the West humiliate and plunder Russia. People's incomes fell to one-third what they were when the Soviet Union fell. But Putin changed all of that. 
He brought the Russian deep state under control. He kicked out the Rothschild's banking system. He allowed the country to prosper. In 14 years, Vladimir Putin made personal incomes 10 times as high as they were when he took office, and they hate Vladimir Putin for that. You probably already know that the Russian communists opposed religion, but it was even worse than you most likely realize. The Bolsheviks blew up, exploded, or dismantled literally tens of thousands of churches in that country, including priceless works of art that were centuries old. But with Putin's support, by 2019, Russia was building three new churches every day to remedy what the communists had done. And this is Russia, not America, so the new churches are actually beautiful instead of ugly abominations. I encourage you to look up the Cathedral of the Russian Armed Forces or the Cathedral of Christ the Savior. When Putin took office in Russia, their murder rate nationwide was 30 per 100,000. That's worse than the murder rate in Chicago right now. Imagine that for an entire country. That was the situation when Putin took over. Today, Russia's murder rate is five per 100,000, lower than the United States is right now. In two decades, Vladimir Putin cut the murder rate to under one-sixth what it was before. And they hate Vladimir Putin for that. This is the real reason our elites hate Putin so much. He completely humiliates them by improving his country without being some slave to Washington. He protects his nation's culture instead of replacing them with migrants and promoting degeneracy. They tell you that Putin wants to rebuild the Russian empire or something like that, or that he's Hitler and wants to randomly just take over all of Europe. That's a lie. Every conflict Putin has been involved in is directly related to the interests of Russia and the interests of the Russian people. That includes this one. Putin cares about the interests of Russians in Ukraine, and he worries about the anti-Russian NATO alliance that's getting expanded right up to his front door. Keep in mind, NATO was designed for one specific reason, to fight Russia. Vladimir Putin spent two decades pleading with U.S. diplomats to resolve these issues through negotiations, but our elites wouldn't budge, not a single inch. Well, now they got the war that they wanted so badly. But there's another reason that our elites love this war, besides using it as a chance to take down Putin. They can use it to mask their own incompetence. Already, we've seen the press blaming inflation and shortages on Russia, even though both of these things massively predate anything in Ukraine. It's just a huge lie. They also like this war as a distraction. Last week, mask mandates went away in Maryland, Delaware, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and in New York. And within two weeks, they'll be gone in California, Oregon, Washington, and in New Jersey. Overnight, Democrats are just trying to pretend that they didn't terrorize our children and blow up our economy in a fit of COVID hysteria. They're trying to just make things normal again and thinking that we'll thank them for beating COVID when in fact, they did nothing to beat anything. As a matter of fact, most likely were involved directly with intentionally manufacturing and engineering and releasing some sort of bioweapon virus out of a Wuhan China lab. COVID did what all viruses do. It just naturally went away. And they ruined people's lives for two years so that they could make us suffer and satisfy their own egos. And our elites like this war for one last reason, because they can make Putin this big public enemy. And while they make him the scapegoat, they think that they can distract the American people from our real enemy, them. Putin didn't force this bioweapon shot on your kids. They didn't coerce you into taking this injection under the threat of losing your job and forcing you into the unemployment line. Putin didn't put critical race theory in our schools. 
Vladimir Putin didn't tell us that Jesse Smollett was a victim and that George Floyd was a saint. He didn't let rioters run wild in 100 different cities, causing $12 billion in damage over a three-month period last summer. Well, Antifa and BLM criminals, terrorists, looted and burned down churches and lit fire to occupied dwellings and police precincts and raped people and killed them and targeted cops for assassination. All in the name, by the way, of that career criminal home invading thug who died of a fentanyl overdose on the streets of Minneapolis. Vladimir Putin didn't let sicko doctors castrate your kids. The same people who brought you orange man bad, vaccine good, and riots good now want you to just mindly believe Putin bad. They want to fight a war for democracy in Ukraine to make you forget that they killed democracy right here in the United States. Don't let them. This is as good an analysis as I've heard on the affairs unfolding in Ukraine and the way they reflect on the government of America. Do you still think America is God's country? According to the Bible, God punishes three categories of wayward people. He punishes individuals based on their own sinful behaviors. He punishes governments for the sinful behavior of the leaders towards the people they govern. And he punishes nations for the sinful behavior of its government toward other nations and other people. God does not hold anyone responsible for the sins of other individuals, Ezekiel 18.20, which is good because we have enough problems with our own sins. It may surprise you, however, that God does hold the people of a nation responsible for the wrongful acts of their own government. To the extent that we support and participate in the wrongful acts of governance, we will bear responsibility for it both in this world and the one to come. Exhibit 1 is the destruction of Babylon. God utterly obliterated the Neo-Babylonian Empire as punishment for destroying what remained of Judea, killing tens if not hundreds of thousands of people, and destroying the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. He said Babylon would cease to exist, and to this day, all that remains of the empire is a big rock pile and a very faint memory. To appreciate the magnitude of its destruction, it's helpful to picture what it was like just before its fall. The city was shut up tight as a drum behind its 40 miles of walls, considered one of the wonders of the world. It had two primary defensive walls and a third wall built by Nebuchadnezzar. Herodotus said the walls were 85 feet wide and 335 feet tall, with hundreds of defensive towers soaring above them. Might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but they were big. The main gate was 47 feet high and 32 feet wide. The city had 25 fortified gates protected by massive bronze doors. The walls were separated by enough space to easily turn a chariot around and grow food in the event of a siege. The city had an inexhaustible built-in water supply for the community in that a river ran right through the middle of it. It had enormous gardens and years of stockpile grains to provide the inhabitants with ample food, and it was wealthy beyond imagination, possessing not only vast amounts of gold and precious materials, but technologies that were unknown or unobtainable in most of the rest of the world. The wealth of Babylon was legendary, and Babylonian soldiers were abundant, well-trained, and professional. So despite a massive Persian army that was encircling it, the Babylonian people were probably feeling pretty confident about their security. Maybe a few of them had the tiniest nagging hint of unspecified anxiety tugging at their hearts, but probably not too many. The city leaders were certainly feeling secure enough. They had a drunken orgy the night of the disaster that fell on the city. 
in a single night, all that wealth, power, and security suddenly vanished in an unprecedented cataclysmic disaster of infiltration, murder, and destruction, exactly like God said it would. The disaster came by a pathway no one expected. The Persians had diverted the river water just enough to lower the surface of the river below the protective gates to allow their army to enter the city through the water system. Is there a similar nagging sense of anxiety today in America? Does it seem like something ominous and vaguely threatening is lurking somewhere nearby? It should, because something is. And that something is a war. Oh, it's not a shooting war, not yet. It's a covert war that is gradually evolving into a shooting war. Europe, NATO, and the American government are seemingly doing everything they can to goad Russia into a fight over a country that has no strategic value whatsoever to America or its allies, a country that's run in large part by overt Nazi sympathizers. What is the value of this war, especially given the risks of a nuclear exchange of the involved parties? Why would supposedly rational political leaders risk a nuclear confrontation? Well, there's always a reason. And the rah-rah cheerleading for freedom excuse that was rolled out by the government and media stinks of clumsy propaganda designed to mask the real reason or reasons for our involvement. One reason might be to secure the 20-something bioweapons laboratories the U.S. Defense Department has been operating in Ukraine. And no, this is not a conspiracy theory. It's been confirmed not only in many government document releases and website pages before they were taken down, but it's also been confirmed by Undersecretary of State Victoria Nuland, despite the media's desperate attempt to cover up the story. Does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Uh, Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities, which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. Now, don't be deceived by those carefully selected words. These are not medical laboratories created to find a cure for the next bad flu season. They are level 3 and 4 bioweapons laboratories working on gain-of-function manipulation of DNA to produce novel new viruses for offensive weapons purposes. And given that some of these laboratories were looking for Russian citizens, or citizens with Russian descent for their testing and research, there's a strong suspicion that the viruses were being genetically modified to preferentially attack certain ethnic groups, like white Russian people. Researching these kinds of weapons right in Russia's backyard is kind of a hostile act, kind of like an act of war. Merriam-Webster defines war as 1. A state of usually open and declared armed hostile conflict between states or nations. Or 2. A state of hostility, conflict, or antagonism. A struggle or competition between opposing forces or for a particular end. In the first definition, the main quality is armed conflict between states or nations, which they helpfully qualify as usually openly declared. That implies that some wars are not openly declared, not readily visible to the world, and occur behind the scenes, so to speak. The second definition is a struggle between opposing forces or a struggle for a particular end. 
The implication of that definition is that a war can occur between large, powerful entities that are large enough to involve the general public. So war, in the broad sense, is a conflict between two or more large political entities or organizations that is designed to achieve a particular end. They say the first thing to die in a war is the truth. If that's true, and if we're at war, then we should expect the propagandists to come out and to manipulate public perception to facilitate the desired goals and objectives in the war. Dictionary.com defines propaganda as information, ideas, or rumors that are deliberately spread widely to help or harm a person, group, movement, institution, nation, etc. If the information being spread widely happens to be true, accurate, and complete, then it's not propaganda. It's truth. Propaganda always involves deceptions, lies, half-truths, and false information that's directed against a person, group, movement, institution, nation, etc. And that's because propaganda is goal-oriented. That which furthers the goal is beneficial, and that which impedes the goal is harmful. The Western media, which is supposed to guard truth, has become a lying propaganda machine. The press is trying to help the U.S. government by suppressing true information that makes the government look bad or exposes its nefarious goals, and by promoting false information that helps achieve those goals. It does the opposite with the information about Russia. A press that speaks for and advances the agenda of a corrupt government is a corrupt and dangerous press. There's a word for a political system where government and private interests work cooperatively to achieve a corrupt agenda. It's called fascism. Dictionary.com does a particularly bad job defining the essence of fascism and chooses instead to define one particular type of fascism that was popularized by the Nazis. It defines fascism as a governmental system led by a dictator having complete power, which is a dictator, forcibly suppressing opposition and criticism, regimenting all industry, commerce, etc., and emphasizing an aggressive nationalism and often racism. Now, this is a wonderful description of Hitler's fascist state with a focus on the social applications of his personal ideology. But it's a terrible definition if you want to understand the root substance of fascism and why it has been so popular historically. And I think it's been deliberately made that way, just to obscure the real definition. Now, I don't argue that Hitler's dictatorship was terrible, or that tyrannical dictatorship in general is the logical endpoint of fascism, but the process of getting to that endpoint is completely left out of the definition. If we don't understand the process, then we're very likely to repeat it because we will not see the path to fascism's success, much like the Babylonians did not see the path to the Persian army's success. And this is what the propagandists are hoping for. HeinOnline.org does a much better job explaining the essence of fascism so that we can understand the process. The website reads, Fascist economics advocate for self-sufficiency and individual profit, but promote government subsidies of corporations. Fascist economics thus supports a blend of both private and public ownership over the means of production. There is an emphasis on private profit, but at the same time, the national interest is ultimately more important. That's the end of it. Like communism and socialism and capitalism, Fascism is an economic system first and a political system second, something that must be appreciated to understand where we are today. We're living in a society that's all about economics. The most powerful people alive are the billionaires whose wealth comes out of our economic system. 
tyrannical governments have a nasty habit of forming from economic systems that help advance their agendas. Since governments produce nothing, tyrants need to control what gets produced to make sure that the right things get produced, from their perspective, of course. Communists seek to accomplish this goal by stealing and declaring they own all the means of production, which means owning all the businesses that produce things. Fascists, on the other hand, seek to accomplish this by owning the corporate executives who run the businesses. The objective of the tyrants in both systems is to run the world, but they want to get there from different paths. Now you see why the online dictionaries focus on Hitlerism and Nazism rather than the economic identity of fascism. It's the economic system that makes people fascist. Economically, fascism is a public-private partnership where business people cooperate with the political rulers to help implement government policies, and in return, the political rulers allow the business people to enrich themselves at the expense of the populace. The regular people don't matter to such rulers or executives. They consider workers not so much human beings as needful tools of collective production that are necessary to enrich the elites. That way of thinking is how the Nazis rose to power. They worked cooperatively with the business community and banks to create a powerful state government that gradually turned ordinary citizens into forced laborers to work in the factories and work camps. In the process, the business people became fabulously wealthy and successful. It was a classic example of the power of public-private partnerships. Now think for a moment, where have we heard the term public-private partnerships before? Oh yes, from politicians. One early version was a statement released by the Office of Social Innovation and Civic Participation on July 1, 2008, that read, in part, President Barack Obama has made it a priority for this administration to find new ways for the government to partner with nonprofits, foundations, philanthropists, private organizations, academia, and all levels of government in solving shared problems. Partnerships are based upon the convergence of interests between U.S. government and non-government partners that advance the objectives of each respective organization. Now that was very well said. Notice the groups that are going to benefit from this partnership. Always the government, of course, first and foremost. Then non-profits, foundations, philanthropists, private organizations, and academia. These organizations today are owned or funded in large part by the billionaires so that they can quietly work with the government to increase government power and enrich themselves at the same time. This is why they favored shutting down the world's economies to small businesses but exempted their large businesses from shutting down. The people who own or fund these organizations also own the large businesses. While this kind of partnership benefits the insiders substantially, it does nothing to benefit you or me. It does nothing to advance the objectives of a free and independent people, or to promote true transparency, or to stop corrupt behaviors, or to rein in the tyrannical impulses of political leaders. If your respective organization does not share the same ideological vision as the government, then your organization will be marginalized, shunned, and shut down if at all possible. And that's how fascism works. It's ironic, then, that almost 80 years after the end of World War II, the new fascists are fighting the new communists for world domination, and the battle has been taken to Ukraine. 
We are facing the unpleasant reality of a government takeover by political tyrants and despotic wannabes who would rather rule by edict than submit to the limitations imposed on them by the American Constitution and the people. They work with our most powerful business interests to stifle any hint of opposition, punish those who try to expose what's going on, and impose their will on those who are unwilling to be tyrannized. And disturbingly, these people seem to be winning. Now, I've heard a lot of talk about pushing back, buying arms, and stockpiling ammunition to prepare for the coming day of judgment. I've heard others say that we should use the courts to sue the bad guys into submission because there's no other contingency plan. So the choice seems to be between open warfare and civil warfare. So what's a Christian to do? The first thing I would recommend is that you don't go running off to Ukraine to fight in their war. Whatever these people want is nothing we should be involved with. As far as what we should do here, Let's start from the perspective of the world and see what can be done there first. If you want to go into the courts and fight for righteousness and virtue, then by all means give it a try. Historically, courts have not been a strong branch of government when it comes to facing down tyranny. Lawyers in robes might fancy themselves fierce fighters in a courtroom, but only because there's no real threat to their person. It's a completely artificial arena put a real physical risk in their lives, and they historically cower and do as they're told. Court intimidation is just an ordinary part of the rise of tyranny. But it doesn't hurt to present a case in court while we still have some semblance of freedom left in America. Just keep in mind that several progressive groups are now pooling their considerable resources to sue every lawyer and non-lawyer who goes to court to fight the increasing tyranny in America. They are seeking to have the lawyers disbarred and their intimidation is working. So you might conclude that that just leaves us with guns and prepping and that sort of resistance. Well, before you head off to shove a gun in someone's face, consider the number of government employees with guns that you will face if you do that. Recent events in Canada, Australia, Austria, New Zealand, and other Western countries has demonstrated that the police are, if anything, defenders of the governmental status quo, not freedom fighters. And they are very well armed. If the situation ratchets up to involve the military, then know that they are going to be far less patient with you than even the police, and they have much bigger guns. If these institutions decide to turn violently against the American public, for all the guns the public has, the battle will not last very long. Our only hope is that the rising globalist fascist tyrants will not convince enough police and military to go along with their takeover plans to really threaten the American public. Unfortunately, the recent purging of more traditional people from the military and comments from those who remain, not to mention the willingness of police to enforce almost any edict coming from government, makes it seem very likely that most of the police and military personnel will obey orders and turn on the American public if they are called to do so. Our forefathers anticipated that this would be the case. That's why they created the real backup plan called the Second Amendment. Unfortunately, the government has done a fantastic job making sure that almost no one really understands what the founders were trying to do with the Second Amendment, even though it's written in plain and simple English. The Second Amendment is not about our ability to hunt or protect our homestead from criminal invaders or defend ourselves from attackers on the streets, important as those things are. The founders would not have bothered addressing those particular issues because those issues were just taken for granted. What they were concerned about was defeating a rogue nation-state, particularly one that is our own. The amendment says, 
In order to maintain a well-regulated militia, the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. A militia is a community volunteer army. Its purpose is to quickly raise, in communities across America, an organized armed local group of soldiers in the event of a sudden armed conflict or existential threat to the community. And that is the backup plan. Unfortunately, the American people were duped into believing that the government should control the militia. When the federal government claimed that the National Guard is the militia rather than a reserve component of the regular army, which is what it really is, most people believed them. But a military organization controlled by the government is the antithesis of a militia. A militia exists, in part, to provide resistance to a government that gets out of control. The well-organized part means trained, equipped, and able to cooperate with other local militias, because in a war, the more people who can cooperate with each other, the better off they are. As far as weapons go, the founders contemplated that the militias would have the same weapons that the government possessed. The militia was to be a counterforce to a standing army, and that can't be done by limiting it to possessing antiquated or inappropriate weapons. Now, that doesn't mean that Joe Hamburger militiamen should go around shouldering an M4 rifle down Main Street in his civvies, but it does mean that the militia should have M4 rifles available to its members. Since we obviously don't have any militia, well-regulated or otherwise, the contemplated last option has been removed from our toolkit. Now, I'm not suggesting that you give up your arms to the government, but you should understand what you can realistically expect to accomplish by resisting the modern U.S. Army. Personal arms are for personal protection, not armed resistance to determined tyrant armies. Are Christians allowed to use weapons for self-defense? Well, that's a hot-button issue. We'll leave that for next week. With regard to what Christians can do in a situation with an out-of-control government, we can only do what we're instructed to do in Scripture, unsatisfying to our flesh as that might be. We are to withdraw from the unfruitful works of darkness and refuse to participate in any of it. And we are to prepare ourselves for persecution. Um, go read Daniel and find out what his friends did. That's what we're supposed to do. You see, if there is one thing that tyrants really hate, it's people who resist them on principle, especially when that principle involves issues centering around Jesus in the Bible. Bad times are coming, so Christians had better get used to the idea of being on the short end of tribulation. But whether the persecution comes or not, we are to be a shining light on a hill. We are to stand for the truth, stand for God and his laws, and not compromise with the world. If we see someone being wronged because they are standing for truth and real justice, not the invented, inverted, twisted forms of justice we have these days, then we need to support that person. If we see someone in need, then we should help that person. If we discover that someone has not heard the gospel, then maybe we should try to open a conversation with them about it. When we are reviled, we should bless, and not sarcastically. When we are defamed, we should not defame back, but we can address the defamation. When our enemies are in need, then we should help meet that need, as long as it doesn't help advance the objectives of the world. And most important of all, we should always tell the truth. The truth is from God, and lies are from hell. Just don't expect to get a real favorable response when you speak truth because lots of people, including some Christians, don't really want to hear the truth about many things, like the current state of our government. 
There's nothing in these commandments that would call for us to insult, defame, mock, antagonize, steal from, lie to, fight, or kill our fellow brothers and sisters, whether they are in Christ or out of Christ. Believe me, as an ex-army guy, there are times that I really want to do some of these things to certain people. I don't usually want to help my enemies, but that's what Jesus calls us to do. Loving others, which is agape love, which means sacrificing for other people's good, is how we represent Christ on this earth and how we become that strange and enigmatic shining light on the hill. The world thinks only crazy people act the way Christians are told to act, so the world is not going to like it when we do that. That's how we know we're on the right track. Now, in the next episode, we will talk briefly about self-defense, what it is and what it's not, and some other timely topics. But for today, if you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, or possibly even entertaining, please recommend it to someone you know who might benefit by it. Give it a thumbs up or a happy face or whatever else your app has to encourage others to listen. Please pray for this podcast to reach more people and help them personally and spiritually. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, and Pandora. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Until next time, keep your eyes up, your head down, and get ready to do the work of God. 